Welcome back to Bible Love. We are in the throes of um, wrapping up Advent and getting to uh, this Sunday is going to be Advent 4 in the morning, Christmas Eve at night, and it's going to be a lot of fun and our altar guilds are going to hate us. Crazy. It's going to be crazy. Uh, but before we like get every three years, right? And it is yeah. nuts. It's pretty crazy. Um, it, yeah. And so, but today is the 21st. We're having our first Christmas Eve service tonight, our contemplative Christmas. We do it on the longest night, right? Uh, it's for, you know, we do it for folks for whom the bells and whistles of Christmas Eve might be a little too much this year. We're also doing that in commemoration of the Feast of St. Thomas. And so today is his feast day. So let us pray. Ever-living God, who strengthened your apostle Thomas with firm and certain faith in your son's resurrection, grant us so perfectly and without doubt to believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God, that our faith may never be found wanting in your sight, through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we. <laughs> I told my parish yesterday, Alan, I was like, well, I had a little conversation with God, and this is what God told me. Because Christmas Eve and Advent 4 are on the same day, it's okay to decorate early. Nobody's going to die, and it's going to oh be... Oh, my. No. No. Get out of here. I'm reporting you to the bishop. No. Well, we, this is what we decided. We're going to put the greens up, and then we'll put all the red bows on after Advent. Come on. Come on. Hey, man, we don't have time. We got to do, we got, we no, got to. It, no, it's, it's fine. <laughs> Gavin and I, we got this huge frontal on our altar that our altar is beautiful. It's like wooden stump, like uh, wood legs and a, a marble top. We've had this frontal on all the time. We take it off for, for Lent. This year, we're taking it off for Advent as well. But Gavin and I have to hoist that thing around because it's big and heavy. So big. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to do that 8.30 and 10.30. You know, it's going to be me, Gavin, and the three most faithful people in the world, probably. No one else will come to church in the morning. Uh, I say that, but we're, we'll be slammed. Look. Um, but I told everyone, I was like, hey, if you're trying to get Christmas Eve out of the way, there's no baby Jesus next Sunday morning. Yeah. We're still going to be talking about broods of vipers and yeah. all this other stuff. If you want baby Jesus, you're going to have to come back to church. Yeah, we're doing the same thing, but it's it's uh, it's crazy time town when it's on the same day. So, but in the middle of Advent, here we are with Ezekiel. So I just loved having Cameron on last week, y'all, and I've already scheduled him, y'all, for next um, semester. So he's coming back, and I'm excited about that. Um, but we've got the rest of Ezekiel to do because. Alan and I are going to give ourselves a little break and take a two-week break, y'all. And then we're going to come back um, in early January, and we're going to talk about Daniel. And then we've got all these awesome prophets that we're going to talk about all spring, and we've got tons of great guests. So don't leave us, y'all. Just let us have a little two-week break so that we can be with our families and do the things we need to do um, during that time, which is also 
like going to see the shut-ins and the folks who um, can't come to Christmas. And so um, we know that you'll you'll um, forgive us for <laughs> taking a two-week break and we'll be back. So let's talk about Ezekiel. We talked about the sort of the first 15 chapters last week, and it's, it's a rather long book. It goes um, through, uh, for, it has 48 chapters. And, and Cameron talked about this. It's kind of a strange book of the Bible. It really is. But what sort of stands out to me, and Alan, please correct me if I'm wrong, but in Ezekiel, towards as the times we're talking about now, 15 through further on, there's these parables which when you think about parables, you think about Jesus and his parables. And I this is where I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. I don't really remember us having parables in the Old Testament before now. Um, but Ezekiel, it kind of makes sense when you think about it because it's sort of a different type of book and these visions and all these kind of strange things for him to speak in parables a little bit. So I was wondering if you had some thoughts about that. Am I wrong? Have we had parables? Not that I can recall. At least they're not a major thing. I mean, we've talked a lot about the type of literature that's in scriptures. In the Old Testament, right, there's um, there's some allegory poetry at the beginning, right? Remember Genesis? It's not a history book. It's not right. a science textbook. There's some poetry in there. There is historical narrative, like when we're talking about the kings, when we're talking about the patriarchs, when we're telling those stories. There is wisdom literature. We've talked about that. But there's not, you know, a parable is a teaching tool, right? Um, and I can't really think, maybe in there, Moses is using a parable somewhat when he's talking to people. It's probably in there some, but it's never a major feature. We don't look at it, yeah. right? Like we look at the Gospels and... And there's history, there's what Jesus did, but parables are a major part of that. We we hold it up and we see it. I don't I don't recall that. Well, so Dr. Far. Tony can tell us if we're wrong yeah. when we yeah. have it later, but I'm sure he's listening. He'll tell us all. The way so tell us if we're wrong. So this is this is what I'm kind of seeing as I'm reading through this. Um is there's a parable about a vine, okay? And then there is some shamefulness about Jerusalem. And this is where this is a li- was a little tough for me when I was reading this, um, because Jerusalem is compared to some a female being unfaithful and as a prostitute. Um, and so I felt a little uncomfortable when reading that because um, it's all in a feminine voice to me. Um, but the, and God judges um, Jerusalem and says you're just like your mother and your and daughter and and there's a lot of women shaming it felt like. Um, but then we get another parable of the eagle and the vine, and then, then there's this whole thing of God's promises of hope, right? So um, we get. The parables, we we get some um, things that make us a little bit uncomfortable, and then we go back into this hope, which, again, is a, is a very normal story that we hear often in the Bible, this, this sort of up and down mountain and valley um, type of, um, of thing. And then, then in chapter 19 is this song of sorrow, um, which I have been reading a little bit, and it's... Um, 
I know that Christmas can be really hard for a lot of people. I've been talking to a lot of people about that um, and, and sort of that hardness. And, and this is here as well. And I think that's interesting because I tell people, you know, Alan, do people ever come to your office and they're telling you about something and they start crying and they say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Well, I don't know. I feel like I make people cry all the time. I don't even know what I do to make them cry. But to me, when you're crying and when you're showing emotion, that's actually like a really healthy thing. What worries me is when people are like totally numb and not expressing themselves at all. And I think this part of Ezekiel kind of shows that, that it's okay to be sorrowful. It's okay to feel sad and to lament. And, um, and, and again, that's, maybe that's where I get this. I want you to express your sorrow. Does that, does that? Yeah. Um, I think that's culture, right? It's, we have to put on the brave face. You know, I mentioned our contemplative Christmas. Some people call those services blue Christmas services, but to me, that sounds like an Elvis theme Eucharist. Yeah. Um, but even Elvis's song, right? I'll have a blue Christmas without you. Um, I think it's interesting that if you do it on the longest night, the idea is like the most darkness we have. Um, that's the 21st of December and the Feast of St. Thomas. And Thomas is nothing if not honest about his doubts. Mm. Right. If So you go all the way back. Right. Like I'm preaching a Easter sermon on a Christmas Eve service because, right, when Thomas didn't have the faith to believe, his friends were still there saying, come on, and I'm going to help you. Right. The other disciples believed in, on his behalf. And Thomas felt safe enough to be like, Jesus, this is crazy. Yeah. Peter, this is crazy. No, like, I'm going to be honest with you. And look, Thomas turned uh, it around and obviously became an apostle. And But in that moment, like, he wrestled with his true feelings. And we have that. Like, there's been times in my life um, when I don't feel the Christmas spirit. Sure. That doesn't make the Christmas spirit any less true. But it also doesn't make my feelings any less true. And so... We have in scripture here, yeah, be honest. Um, you know, can these dry bones live? Yeah. To quote Ezekiel, right? That's an honest question to God. God's gonna say, all this stuff, this dead stuff is gonna come back to life. We can actually say, is that true? I doubt it. Help me believe it. Well, and I think you make such a valid point. I think that's such a, a beautiful part of the Bible is that these are real people that had real experiences with God and there were real emotions surrounding it, which makes us feel safer. I hope in our own emotions and our own sorrow in our own happiness and our own hope, whatever the emotion is. Um, I, I value that in the Bible. I value yeah. that God shares that with us. Yeah. I think I'm looking for it here. Um, I'm looking in the burial liturgy, right? Um, I'm not going to find it, but in our burial liturgy, there's, you know, about the service and it talks about, um, you know, the, in the Episcopal church, the burial liturgy is an Easter liturgy. It finds all its hope and meaning in the resurrection. That's great. It's easy. All joy. No, it goes on to say that does not make grief unchristian, 
right? Like it's it's so easy for us to say, oh, Jesus is born. It's Christmas. Look at the lights. Yay, everything's better. No. I remember what Christmas was like the first Christmas after my dad died. It sucked and I hated it. I remember what Christmas was like the first Christmas after I was divorced and I had the boys by myself. It sucked and I hated it, right? Christmas is a lot better now, right? Like I found the joy again. But that didn't mean 2017, 2022, whatever, didn't mean those weren't real. We all have those moments where it's really hard to to remember that Jesus Christ was born. Yeah. And I hate to tell you, my friend, but you know this, there will be other hard Christmases. Oh, for sure. And um, I think that we need to live into that, you know, yeah. and um, express that. Okay, so as we continue into Ezekiel, what's really interesting to me is, and I'm kind of like more in like chapter 25 and 26, and is there's these prophecies against certain towns and villages. Okay, so Tyre, Edom, Moab, the and and people, um, and so it, it. And then there's then there's like these funerals for these places, or that's what the heading has in in grandmother's Bible, um, and against these cities. And so I don't know. I think that's sort of interesting. Um, and then it keeps going. There's a prophecy against Egypt. Then there's a prophecy against. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, you know that one. Easy for you to say. Uh, yeah, easy to say. And Egypt, and it keeps going. Um, and so, uh, to me, it's like it's so much a part of the story. Um, but then, like, we get into the shepherds and the good shepherd, and I wanted to talk about all of that because. When we again, when we think about these things, the shepherds that came to visit Jesus on the day he was born, the good shepherd, that's a story we know. Those feel like New Testament stories. Those feel like Jesus stories. Right. And I think um, we did lessons in carols yesterday and it was so beautiful because it shows the prophecy of Jesus coming in the Old Testament. And I think sometimes people are like, why do we have the Old Testament? You know, why can't we just get to the good part about Jesus? And even you and I have said that, like, we can't wait till baby Jesus comes, you know. But there is so much prophecy in Ezekiel and all these other prophets about what will come. God is setting us up already for um, for baby Jesus. At least that's how I feel. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Anytime we read in there, right? Like, it's... Lessons and carols, right? And you start with Genesis and Adam yeah. and Eve and screwing up the whole operation. Merry Christmas, right? Yeah. Like, but what's the point of the incarnation if not our utter need? What's the point with the shepherds in the field? And there's a lot of debate over who the shepherds were and whether they were like doing a priestly job or if they were outcast and Whatever. One preacher is better than the other. So let's just assume shepherds are out in the field. They're the every man. They're the place you least expect, right? For the angels to show up in the place that you least expect with the shepherds. For the angels to show up in the place you least expect with foreign stargazers, the wise men, right? Like that's, um, we hear that echoed throughout the Old Testament. God shows up in the places that you least expect and Oftentimes, the place that had a curse over it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Ezekiel ends with this building of the altar and the temple and all of that. And I wanted to read. Okay, so y'all just for everybody at home, I'm in Good News Bible, Grandmother's Bible. And I wanted to read what we said, what it's what the sort of introduction says about Ezekiel, because I think this is like a nice way to understand who he was as a person. So Ezekiel was a man of deep faith and great imagination. Many of his insights came in the form of visions, and many of his messages were expressed in vivid symbolic actions. Ezekiel emphasized the need for inner renewal of the heart and spirit and the responsibility of each individual for his own sins. He also proclaimed his hope for the renewal of the life of the nation. As a priest, as well as a prophet, he had special interest in the temple and in the need for holiness. So Ezekiel kind of ends with this building of the altar and the temple. And, you know, after all this sort of shaming that's happened and all of that. And you and I, as priests, we care for the church and the temple and we we care for the altar. But we also have all these wonderful people that help us with all of those things. And I can understand, as he was called as a priest, that that felt really important to him, you know, that the temple and the altar were protected. And I don't know how you feel, but like, to me, that's, that altar is kind of the one thing I feel like I have in the building, I have to take care of the most. Um, And on um, Maundy Thursday, Um, there is this one thing that only a priest can do. And this is not to like elevate priests into a place that they shouldn't be. But this is this one thing that, that only a priest can do is we get to wash the altar. Um, And I do that every year and I'm sure you do as well or have. Um, And there's, and and I don't know if that goes back to Ezekiel. I'm getting in my mind. I'm going to say it does, but um, that we do get this special thing that we get to protect. Um, and I, the, the, and in my church, I've not been to St. Martin's and I hope I get to go sometime, but in my church, and I'm sure most churches are like this, the altar rail is a little bit further from the altar. Right. And sometimes I want to just rip that altar rail out and I want them to be all around the altar. And one of the things that Bishop Richards has asked is that, um, you're not standing up there by yourself. You know, he wants the Eucharistic minister or the deacons or the acolytes or whatever. Everybody be right there at the table together. Um, but I, I know we have to have a place for people to kneel. But that it feels like we should all be together. What do you think? Yeah, that lots of things are. Uh, your church is beautiful, by the way. It's old and well done. My church was hand built by parishioners. It's beautiful in its own way. It's not the the classical style like yours. Our altar rail is is. Pretty close, 10 feet away. Um, a couple weeks ago, we did an instructed Eucharist, and I invited the kids up um, to the table during the consecration to the altar. And, you know, they're gathered around, and Jackson, this little kid, like he's leaning on the altar and looking up and, like, you know, doing all these things. And someone didn't ask me, but someone said to someone else, you know, do you think people were offended? Mm. Right. And so there's, you know, I, 
I get the idea that the altar is this holy, sacred place. And, you know, there are certain things we're not going to use that altar for. Right. right? Like it's it's not just a, a storage table. It's not whatever. But if a kid's up there participating in the Eucharist and leaning on it, that to Absolutely. me. We're protecting the table for that purpose, not from that purpose. I, I totally agree. And I'm so glad you said that, because I think sometimes when we say protecting the altar, we can mean like, don't touch it. And that's yeah, not right. Like other people can actually touch it. It's a real thing. You can lean on it. You're not going to break it. Well, you can maybe break it, but um, a lot. And so, you know, I plan on the our 4 p.m. family Christmas service. I'm going to invite the kids up around the table again. Right. And just so they can see and be a part. And I love this. I don't I never met Bishop Richards, but I love this idea. Uh, right now, the only people around the altar when I consecrate are the two deacons. Um, and the seminarian, other people are like standing behind and stuff. What would it look like? We don't have a ton of space, but to invite the acolytes and stuff to gather around. I mean, I love that to where it's not, you know, we've changed other parts of the service. Like our prayers, the people are no longer read by someone who's vested. Oh, good. Because I want to eliminate number one, that it's clergy that do everything and have the magic powers. But number two, that it's even the people that are vested. So like the more people around the table, I'll have to think about that because, right, we do have a responsibility over the table, over the altar and and what what happens there. But at the same time, we're protecting it, I think, for a purpose, not from things as much. It's not like we're fending off wild dogs. Yeah. Well, I'll have to send you this picture. Maybe you can put it in the show notes. I'll do it in a minute. Um, so we have the Las Patas tradition at our church where yep. Mary and Joseph go around with you. And so um, Marty, one of my parishioners, got Mary and Joseph yesterday. And she said, um, let's put them on the altar and let you like get behind them. So like they're just little toy figurines or whatever. Yeah. And I'll send it, maybe put it in the show notes. But I was like, that's the perfect thing. You know, yes, Mary and Joseph, they traveled to the altar. They, you know, whatever. And I mean, you're right. It should be a place of sharing. And I think you're right. I'm so thankful Bishop Richards has sort of instituted that um, at Mitchell Felton's ordination last week, which I haven't really even talked about. It was so amazing. But Bishop Richards had all of us just like right there around sharing. And I've always loved that. And I always, honestly, whenever I have felt like, there were other priests or clergy in the room. Like it feels funny being up there by yourself, but not just other priests or clergy, like anybody because it's got stable. And Ezekiel clearly saw that and wanted people to adore that place and it be a place of nourishment for them and love for them. So Ezekiel is an interesting, an interesting God, a guy. Um, I'm really thankful for him though. Because he sort of opened up to me that it doesn't all have to look one way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's it's different than other scripture, right? All when we get into the prophets, they're all going to look different in their own way. But Ezekiel kind of stands out. It's one of the longer ones. It's one of the more provocative ones. It's just the imagery, the vivid imagery, the use of allegory, parable, the use of literature and all of this to help us get that like God and God's ways aren't graspable. We're going to try to define it and describe it in a million different ways. And they're all true, 
but none of them can and be the truth. That's right. That's right. Well, Alan, I think we should end the show like we always do, but thinking about being gone for two weeks, um, I wonder if we should send the people out with a blessing this time. Sure. Um, you want to do that? Sure. I'll do that. Okay. Yeah. May the peace of God that passes all human understanding guard your hearts and your minds and the knowledge and love of God and of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with us this day throughout the Christmas season and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Well, listeners, we wish you a merry, merry Christmas. We thank you for being part of this journey with us. We're looking forward to being back with you in 2024. And remember, as always, we love you, but most importantly, God does.